Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Hello there and welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast with Owen Murphy and Ken. Hello there, Owen. Hi, Fellas. How are you doing? I'm excited today. Excited, excited. Today's show combines three of my favourite things in the world. Okay. Argentina. Good. World Cups. Mm-hmm. And Murph's uncle, Jim Carney. I'm, yeah. I'm glad that all three of those things are, are present today. Yeah, all in the one conversation. We've talked to Jim many times over the years, largely about his background working the GA, he was the first ever presenter of the Sunday game, working in the media side of, of things with regards to GA. But he worked in RTE Sport for a number of years, Murph, and travelled to the World Cup in 1978, one of the most famous and infamous tournaments in football history. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk to him all about that today, one of the great storytellers. Do you, uh, do you want to know what I think about when I think about Argentina in 1978? And I'm in, I'm, I would say I'm one of, well, I'm going to say six people who think of this when someone says Argentina 1978. And I think of the most battered-looking tea towel that you could possibly ever imagine. Because... Souvenir. Jim came back from uh, the World Cup in 1978 with uh, a blue and white Argentina 78 with the official World Cup logo tea towel. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I would have thought the thing to do with this is, well, here's a beautiful memento of, you know, an amazing experience in my mother's brother's life. So if I was my mother, I would have, right, we'll put Framed that. It. Put it in cold storage, you know, maybe frame it. This, only, this can only appreciate in value tea towel would surely have been a prized family early. But instead, we used it like... All the time. Like to an absurd degree. Like the, the tea towel, I'm sure it was washed. I'm not going to say that my mother would not wash a tea towel for 25 years. That's not the kind of woman she was. I'm sure she didn't do that. But at the same time, it did seem to be an almost ubiquitous presence in my childhood <laughs> until it kind of it, actually disintegrated. It, dis- it kind of disintegrated into like a few different bits. And then you would think, what have we done? You know, the, you would look at it and you would say, oh, my God, this was a beautiful, beautiful gift all the way from South America. What have we done? 
But instead, we used the tiny little bits for other, even more disgusting menial tasks around the house. So it literally... Stick that one under the monkey leg. Well, that's the way to do it. I think Francis had had the right idea there. There's too many souvenirs framed and put up around the place. Who frames a tea towel, really? A tea towel was was designed... Only if your brother has gone to the World Cup as a journalist. (laughs) That's the only situation in which I would frame a tea towel. Don't we have a framed one? We do. We have a Galti Stephen Roach one. We, we are the kind of people who would do that. We've got framed tea towel in our office. Why do we frame a Stephen Roach tea towel? I don't think he's any of our particular sporting heroes. <laughs> I don't know. But, uh, yeah. He was a very ubiquitous uh, uh, presence, hmm. I guess, in the late 1980s in, in sport. Regardless of various <sighs> reports that have transpired since then. <laughs> anyway, Murph, we're, we're getting sidetracked on Stephen Roach once again. Uh, yeah, so uh, Jim Carney has, I presume, talked to you in a personal capacity about his adventures in 1978, along with Jimmy McGee, his partner in crime. Yes, yeah. It's, uh, d- 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 but again, it's, you know, families are weird. You know, sometimes there are questions that you would ask in a interview, in an interview situation <laughs> that you just wouldn't get around to asking in a uh, call out at on Christmas Day as Jim always does I know Jim has I know it's hard for people to believe right but in Jim's list of interests sport is probably about fourth (laughs) and he's but he's probably more comfortable talking about three other things than he is talking about sport but it was such a great tournament as well the I'm gonna not my memories because I wasn't alive when it was when it was Mm. played out but my the images that strike me confetti Mm-hmm. Lots of confetti or ticker tape, whatever. Ticker what tape, ticker tape as opposed yeah. to confetti. Um, Mario Kempis, scrappy goal. Yeah. File injury, extra time. Yes. Extra time. Yeah. Uh, Dick Ninga just uh, actually yeah. passed away recently. And some rather ropey Peru Peruvian defending in uh, that game that Argentina needed to win by four against quite a mm-hmm. reasonably strong Peru side. Managed to win by six just to be in the safe side. Yeah, there were some moments in that game. Uh, I was actually just looking at it there. Own well, Jim was at the game. Refreshing my memory mm. of it. And some, uh, yeah, some some strange bits of defending where Peruvian defenders just walking around with the ball and then sort of just performs a pratfall by himself, a very deliberate pratfall. Sort of, oh, there, oh, the ball's gone that way. Oh, I can't believe it. I've, I've fallen over completely the other direction. And there go the Argentinians through the gap. Oh, dear, oh, dear. I suppose the game is pretty much beyond out now. That's six. <laughs> so uh, it was very strange. Jim Carney's going to be in studio for all this in a little while. You don't want to miss that. Hopefully you won't miss that. Once you start listening to podcasts, you usually You've committed anyway. now. You've there's, committed. No, there's no going back. Which means you're going to hear, he's going to be on very short. You're going to hear US Murph a little later on talking about violence in the NFL preseason camps. There are all these images emerging from uh, the camps that they're having getting ready for their new season in boiling hot conditions. They're, all, they're in Dallas and elsewhere and... Must be Arizona. I don't know. They're in. They're in. They don't go for cool weather training, which would be a lot nicer on the bodies of the players. They put them in day after day, hour after hour, into these grueling sessions, um, in uh, you know, in amongst the sort of midday heat. And it turns out that a lot of festering issues between players get blown up in that uh, rather heated scenario, mm. and they end up punching each other in the head quite a lot. But I think even by NFL standards, this season it set a new benchmark in the area of ridiculous fights between teammates who really shouldn't be scrapping with each other. Yeah, when, a starting quarterback for one of the teams got his jaw broken. So yeah. it was actually quite And another quarterback it? took a pop, uh, pot shot at a uh, fellow teammate as well. So it is, you know, it, 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 this is an issue that needs to be addressed on. I'm going to see if we can sneak a Shane Lowry mention in with US Murphy's a big golf fan. And the front page of the Irish Times screams Shane Lowry at one point 
my caddy went to give me the ball. My hand was shaking so much he wasn't sure if I could hold on to it, which doesn't sound like... It's, I think it's what we discussed on Monday, Murph. He looked like a guy who was not in control at all. He looked like he could be on the verge of a meltdown, but was toughing it out. Yeah. He wasn't robotic about it. You yeah. could see the man was nervous. And as he says, of course you are. And I was talking to Simon about this before we went on air. Made the very good point that for a golfer, it's a strange one because you're not actually in that situation. How often, especially if your career is in its early stages, have you been in a huge tournament like that leading? I mean, never is the answer yeah. in Shane Lowry's case, as opposed to, say, a footballer who's there's broadly similar levels of pressure in most games for a Premier League footballer. A baseball player, I mean, their heart rate probably doesn't go up or down unless they're yeah. in a World Series. Whereas for Shane Lowry, this is the, he's been in other pressure situations, notably the Irish Amateur at the Irish Open, that he won as an amateur. But you, you actually can't replicate these things and suddenly you're in the middle of it and you're shaking yeah. like a leaf. And the amazing thing that I think about that as well is that, say the shot on 18, where, you know, people are saying he got lucky, whatever. He took on a really difficult shot with a high percentage risk, came off, Birdie the last hole to win a tournament by two when it looked after his drive that he might be it it looked like it could be a playoff. That idea that you're in that situation and it came off and it, it went right for you. That's something that actually you'd never take away from Shane Lowry now. That the next time he's standing on the eighteenth tee box, it's not just that right, okay, I'm really nervous, I hope I get through it. It's like the last time I was in this situation, I was so nervous I could barely hold the ball. <laughs> and I still came through and birdied the last hole when I really needed a birdie. And I think with sports people, that's kind of how their mind works. It's If you've done it once, that means you can always do it. And the next time you're in a really ropey situation, once you've gotten out of that ropey situation, you don't have to be like Steve Peters. You don't have to be like a... you know <laughs> Battling like, your chimp. Yeah, you don't, you don't actually have to think about anything else rather than, well, I was in a really bad situation and it came out brilliantly, so... Mm-hmm. Let's go for it. Uh, so I think that like the win is great in that you you know you beat all these brilliant golfers, all the rest. But the exact circumstances of the win make it all the better from Shane's point of view. We'll get to US Murph a little bit later on, but right now it gives me great pleasure to welcome into studio the one and only Jim Carney. Jim, great to have you in here. Thanks so much. My pleasure, on like old times. Nineteen seventy eight <laughs> World Cup Argentina is the topic of conversation. You were there. You were one of the RT commentary team. Yeah, I think um, six or eight people or so uh, went out. And I'd been in uh, Germany in, in, in 1974 uh, and then in Argentina in, uh, in 78 because I was full-time in the RT Sports Department at the time. Um, and I was with Jimmy McGee on uh, some of the, uh, most of the most of the matches that I was at. I was with Jimmy McGee. I went to see Argentina play once as a, as a spectator. Uh, right, That was interesting because I remember we arrived just at the time um, that the Argentinian team uh, bus was arriving as well. Right. And uh, I just did the fan bit and hung around a bit to have a look and see could I see any of the players or anything like that, which I didn't. But I saw Minotti coming off, uh, getting off the bus. And he was an interesting character, really, because, you know, he was, he was unsmiling. He had the long hair and that always wore the long coat. And he was always ch- he was changed smoker I think uh, but he was already you know quite a major figure you know uh, and I guess he, he he was the man who who made history with, with Argentina but it was a, it was a wonderful tournament it was wonderful football played in in, in, the, in the World Cup in Argentina wonderful players and a fantastic atmosphere in the country and a fantastic atmosphere around the world for that tournament uh, so I think it goes down as, as, as a particularly memorable World Cup. Yeah it's funny because retrospectively what people talk about is that the fact that the so many political dissidents were being disappeared at that time uh, and the military junta being in charge of the country. 
I'm assuming that that well, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm guessing that maybe that wasn't the focus of the coverage at the time. It wasn't, yeah. And uh, looking back on it now, uh, I think it, w- w- everybody, we, we all should maybe have been more aware exactly of, of what was going on. And and but it, at the time, it, it it was almost as if Argentina had one side of it, one side of the country, one element in in the in the way the world looked at the country was about what they called the dirty war. Yeah. But when the World Cup came along. The world almost forgot about the dirty war. It became almost a local problem. It became an Argentinian problem. And in Argentina, because as you know from watching the, the matches in, in that World Cup, the, all those games, and the, the whole tournament was famous as well for the, you know, the, 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 the ocean of confetti that showered over the grounds and all the matches and all that. And it was the same in the city. It was always like the American ticker tape receptions for presidents and all that kind of thing. So the, the atmosphere was not conducive, really, to thinking about political analysis or anything like that. But at the same time, we, we did know that this was happening, you know. They had this name, which was a euphemism for something else altogether. It was called the National Reorganization Process, and it ran um, that military coup they took over for something like 76 to, to, to 83. Uh, and we now know that the, there's actually a figure for the number of people. The, the mothers of the disappeared uh, would always use the word children. They'd say they were looking for their children. They weren't necessarily very young children, that they were presumably youths, maybe from 16, 17. On and not necessarily all male either. There were some female disappeared as well. And the number, the official number now is credited at 5618, 5618. Uh, so th- th- we did get to see um, passing once in, in one of these tour coaches that we were on, being brought to some reception somewhere when we were passing the, the, the presidential palace, which was called the, 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 Casa, the, the Casa Rosada, something like that, the Pink Palace. Not not big pink of the Robbie Robinsons and Lee Van Helms band recording many years <laughs> later, uh, somewhere else. But um, earlier in, um, but that pink palace, we we drove by it once and we saw the groups of mothers. They were dressed mainly in black, a lot of them, uh, the, the long flowing skirts and and shawls and. Uh, we were stopped in traffic, I remember. Jimmy McGee was beside me. Uh, and we were able to see and we, we could observe that it was a silent protest. It was all done, done in silence. That, that was the way... I think that saved them from being arrested, maybe. Whatever. Uh, but it certainly put a chill down your spine. And I mean, there was, I think maybe the hub of a conversation all died down when we saw that. So you definitely did feel it. But it seemed like it kind of started straight back up again. Because, like, uh, I mean, how would you compare? It, it seems like, the, you know, this country had this dictatorship. And, you know, thinking about it now, there's a lot of terrible things happening there. And yet being at the World Cup in 1978 sounds like it was more fun than being at the state in the state West German democracy in 1974. Yes, yes, and that's one of the contradictions. That's one of the things I probably don't understand now, Ken, looking back on it, Uh, because there was a wonderful atmosphere all around the World Cup and in the city, and we went to other places. I went to Mar del Plata, I went to Rosario as well, but mainly in in Buenos Aires. But every now and again, Ken, you know, there would be reminders of it, and there's one one that I haven't particularly, that I've never forgotten. We we would read the papers, and we'd get papers over to us now and then, and there would be English-language papers and all that hanging around, and there was one story that 
First of all, every, we have to say that Kempes is probably the best-known player on the Argentina at the time because he, he got the goals and he got the goals that counted as well. But the most popular player in the team, in my memory, passed around to the captain as well, obviously, the most popular player in the team, in my memory, out there with the Argentinians was Luque because, you know, he was a kind of swashbuckling type of striker. He had the long hair, he, he had a powerful stride, he was a big, strong fellow. He didn't look athletic, but actually he was on the field. He, you know, he was light on his feet. He got one cracking goal early on in the tournament where, where he just hit a volley from... I think 40 yards out or something like that, and screamed into the roof of the net. But this story was that Luque's brother's best friend was among the disappeared. Right. And Luque seemingly was not happy at all that he was, on the one hand, going to suffer, that his brother was suffering for his best friend, uh, and that he then was now playing for Argentina to win the World Cup. But I guess, you know, he was in the team, and his duty yeah. was to, to, win, to win the Cup, and the, 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 the World Cup. And that story was well known, you know. But Luque was, trem- he was, he was one of the success stories of that World were Cup you at for the, Argentina, yeah. Were you at the game against Peru, the infamous game that yeah, they, uh, yeah, the in, goals in, rained in, in, in there? Rosario, but, yeah. yeah. Jimmy McGee and I had a laugh about that, actually, because there was an old Irish country and western song, it was a cover version of a Jim Reeves song and called My Heart was in Rosario. And God, it's awfully cringe even to listen to uh, to this day. But of course, when we got down there, we discovered it wasn't pronounced Rosario, it was pronounced Rosario. Oh, yeah. And Jimmy was saying to me, he said, they won't, they won't know that back in the carnivals back home. He said, you know, <laughs> Jimmy was great company, needless to say. You know, sure. the, the, the other remarkable story I had with Jimmy McGee was we were. This story, I need to interject. Oh, you already know. This, this, is, this story is yeah. a staple of the Murphy household yeah. at Christmas time. The, we, we basically asked Jim to tell us the story every, yeah, every, once, once yeah. every two Christmases. Well, so. we, our flight to run the matches was cancelled uh, with the fog. It was the fog. So, um, an evening kickoff, and we got away in a, in a train, I think, at about six or seven o'clock in the morning. And it was a seven hour train journey. Uh, through the Pampas, it was quite it was quite a train journey through the Pampas, but it was a lot of time to kill, you know. So Jimmy and I, uh, probably the only two English speaking people on the train, I think we, we we decided we'd have this game among ourselves. We, uh, we took each other on and beat the memory man, you know. <laughs> all Ireland football and hurling fans and teams and all this sort of thing, and we ended up almost coming to blows over who played in the Tipperary full forward line in 1964 All Ireland, you know. The the image that I have <laughs> in my head is of you know these Argentinian beef farmers, oh, or yeah. the Argentinian farmers yeah, coming with their and, yeah. Those, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's kind of standing there within this yes. crouched uh, train yeah. cab with these two lunatics yeah. picking the top ten footballers that represented yes. Louds in yeah, the last yeah. 25 yeah. years. Because they, we were the only two non-cattle farmers on the entire train. Yeah, yeah. Although then again, I was born on a, on a, on a small farm yeah. and I did know a bit about cattle. You know, but on the way the way back was the problem then because we had exhausted all this. You know, so right, on, the, yeah. on the way back, just for fun, we decided to take each other on again on show bands. So again, we had a row over who played the tr- <laughs> who played the trumpet for one of the show bands out at the time called the Royal Blues. I you know Jimmy takes it so seriously; he'd nearly fall out with you over things like that. <laughs> you know? yeah. Yeah. It's a long month in Argentina. If you know, if this if uh, this argument goes the wrong way, you know. Yeah, yeah. But that's probably what I remember of that. Plus, Ali McLeod of Scotland. Now that was extraordinary. Yeah. Scotland. Scotland went out to win the World Cup, according to to uh, Ali McLeod. And at a press conference, then a journalist sarcastically asked him, "What will you do when you win it?" And he just shot back straight away. Shut up, everybody in the press room. Retain it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but the 6 nil, the, the Argentina 6 nil against Peru, you were yeah. there, and you yeah. were one of the two... Well, oh, yeah. you would, you'd be safe enough, I would say, in saying that you were one of the two Irishmen well, not quite. in the ground. Not quite. Mickey Duffy was there as well. Mickey Duffy? Mickey, Mickey Duffy, Duffy, Duffy. Was, is, is from Mullingar. And I, I preface this by saying that the, the other, one of the other memories we have from Argentina World Cup was because Argentina were... 
keen to show the world that they knew all about things like football, rock music and all, the, you know, mm. the, maybe to deflect attention even from the political situation or whatever. Uh, on the streets, all the, the rock music, sh- a lot of rock music shops had, had opened up after, you know, the, the British invasion to maybe the United States and all that and everything. Um, they would bro- they had all their music on loudspeakers. So when you're walking down these streets right in the middle, we used to go out every night to, 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 to dinner because you couldn't be in Buenos Aires and not go out and have the steaks and all that. Yeah. It's the world capital of steaks. Yeah. You know, the fillet steak was known as the beef de lomo. And Jimmy McGee, I meet him today, he said, you have a beef de lomo lately. You know? <laughs> uh, but we, we'd be down the streets and the music would be blaring out. And we were going through a particularly busy street one night with the music blaring out. And all we could hear was Joe Dolan's Make Me an Island. <laughs> And the extraordinary thing about it was Make Me an Island had been, an, uh, had been a hit for, for Joe Dolan in 1969, and this is 1978. They love Joe Dolan. Now, I've done a little bit of checking on that years later. Joe Dolan had a hit with that song in 14 countries around the world. It actually didn't make number one in Ireland, which is very interesting, in his own yeah. country. The Beatles get back, I think, kept, kept him out, came after. <laughs> but around the time that we, 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 we were... Well, Jimmy wasn't surprised at that because he knew Joe personally. Jimmy had been in the show band business as well. Everything. He used to write all the, you know, the BLP uh, sleeve notes and all that. Right. Uh, he wasn't surprised by that. But we were talking, um, going down, and, uh, when we were talking about the show bands and all that, we were, we were talking about Joe Dolan and everything. But little did we realise that, that there was another man from Mullingar. Mickey Duffy was there as well. We, we were um, in a hotel one night. We weren't in pubs. I don't even know if they had conventional pubs around that. We were in a hotel one night and we heard this shout, Jimmy McGee, what are you doing here? And it was a man called Mickey Duffy. He was in the insurance business. He's very well known in golf circles. In He's one of the great, great characters of, of, of Mullingar. And Mickey was a kind of well-off businessman. And every now and again, he would say, what's on? And, and around that time, he says, what's on around the world? Said, the World Cup in Argentina. Right, we'll go. <laughs> and he had a few friends. He had a mate called the Birdman Healy, who was well-known as well. And they would just hit off. They'd just go wherever they felt like it. So he would go around to all the matches as well. And uh, he was at that game uh, that wow. night as well. Did any of the goals look dodgy on the night? Well, the Tarantini goal definitely looked looked dodgy. Now I can't remember. It wasn't. It wasn't one of the early goals. I, I think Luke scored as well. I think Luke may, may have broken the ice, but I'm not certain about that. Yeah. I, I can't remember that. But I think Tarantini may have got the fifth or sixth. Now, so it might. Maybe I shouldn't be suspicious of it then, but if it was the fourth, I would remain suspicious. I'm sorry, I haven't been able well, to they probably really needed, pin that down. They probably needed to nail the fifth and sixth just to be sure yeah, that yeah, yeah. Peru didn't but, uh, have Tar- a spirit Tarantini of Tarantini scored with, with a kind of a diving header, but it was a diving header from about 35 yards out. <laughs> <laughs> it was a corner down on, on our right, I remember, and it was an outswinger, and it just it went away on a knock out, and Tarantini just had this low dive at it. And it went through all these defenders and attackers as well. And it was almost as if, they, they, if, if every one of them, especially the defenders, were trying to get out of the way of the ball. Yeah. And it nestled eventually, you know, in, yeah. the, in, in the corner of the net. Now, I believe it's never been proved whether there was bribes or whatever. One of the theories at the time was that all these shipments of grain yeah. were, were going to go to, yeah. going to, go to Peru. Bizarrely, what, what I've read since actually was that all of the stories can't be true and they all kind of contradict each other in yes. some way. Yes, So yeah. there, is a, there is a chance, but certainly there's the, the, the black cloud over yes, that result yeah. hasn't But I think away. it got lost as well in, 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 you know, in the maze of bribe, uh, bribery allegations because there were also a lot of allegations to do with Argentina playing their first round matches, the key matches early on, in, in, at night yeah. when everybody else played during the day. So they always knew what they had to do. They'd seen the other group results and there was a lot of unhappiness about that as well. And then some refereeing decisions were controversial and 
all refereeing, all controversial refereeing decisions favoured Argentina. Argentina came out best of all those. Yeah. What a coincidence that was. The world was saying at the time as well. So there was a lot of stuff going on, you know. And a lot of the fouling was, and to say it was physical would be understated as well. I mean, Passarella was a hard man. I mean, Benetti is famous as a hard man, but uh, Romeo Benetti. But Passarella was one of the great hard men of his time. But he was a wonderful captain. He was the mm. driving force uh, of that team. You know? was, was there much in the way of away support back then? I mean, you mentioned Scotland, no. for example, but they didn't bring a big. No, they were small, vocal, colourfully dressed group, you know. Um, uh, and they, when Ali McLeod, uh, when he took off on these flights of fancy, he took off and they all joined him on it, you know. I mean, there was a funny. He was funny, like the Conor McGregor of his <laughs> yes, time. Yes, he was. He was yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is why this type of uh, talk often. Yes, yeah. Sometimes it works out and sometimes not. it doesn't work out. Yes, yeah, but he, he, he wouldn't have made Conor McGregor's money, I guess, now at the moment. Yeah. There was a very good story about him, Ken. He. Coming up to the game against, was it Peru? They were playing. in the group with yeah, Peru. Peru yeah. yeah, they were, playing, the they were Peru, playing Peru. Yeah. And um, they had a star left winger, uh, or a star winger called Oblitas, uh, who was a very tricky player to mark. And at the press conference out there, just before the game, Ali was asked, you know, what are you going to do about Oblitas? And he said, I've spent a lot of time thinking about that, he said. I'm going to win this match, he said, because I have a master plan for Obitas. And the master plan is that I have the most cultured, refined defender in world soccer, who is not only that, but he's the best man-marker in the game as well. And that's Martin Buchan, captain of Manchester United, who was a very interesting man, and mm. as we know as well, yeah. But what Ali didn't realize, Ali was making it all up. He was spoofing. He believed completely, obviously, in Buchan and all that. But what he didn't realize was that Buchan played only on the left side ever. And Oblitas was also playing on the left side. So Martin Buchan never got near Oblitas in the, in the game at all. <laughs> Martin Buchan, was, was, as a left-back, was marking the right-winger, but Ali forgot to check where was Oblitas playing, so he was spoofing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that was the moment that they suspected he might be a spoofer. All bullshit on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We may not win this yeah, world. Yeah, yeah. But he had After a phenomenal all. sense of humour. He was absolutely brilliant. Because I know, uh, going out, they had between twenty five and 30,000 uh, in Hampton Park to see them off. It was the, it was a victory lap of honour before the tournament started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And coming back, I think there was something like two dozen people, the newspaper said there. <laughs> and they only went to give out to, uh, to, 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 to what he had done. And he was asked how would he react to the whole thing. And he came up with a very, compli- very complicated kind of metaphor which would take it took everybody a lot of time to kind of figure it out. He was going on the. You know, he said he would, he would have been knighted if they had won the World Cup. And when you're knighted, obviously the sword and all that and everything is held yeah. to your shoulder. But he said that he, the sword, far from being held on his shoulder to be knighted, he said was now around his neck, and he was going to be beheaded and all that. Mm-hmm. So he would always come up with. He, with a good line, you know, good line. Yeah, he, yeah. he talked a good game yeah. it sounds like an unbelievable time mm-hmm. you had there but yeah. I don't know Ken's been in a lot of these major tournaments they, can, they, they do go on for a long time and sometimes you miss home did you just yeah. want to leave by the end of it or would you have, would you have said look if, they, if this whole thing gets uh, cancelled and they do, another, just, they do another full tournament I'd just like to say that I always find uh, you know well sometimes you think about home you're, you're usually still, you're still happy enough you to be at the make tournament. It, yeah. make it to the final. So you usually, yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah. I suppose I'll go home after this is finished. You yeah. know. Jim, well, Jim is yeah. capable of human <laughs> some human feelings. Yes, yes. Yeah. So, uh. yeah. Well, it wasn't up to me to decide whether I come home or not. That was just it. I mean, I guess four of us came home. I think, and I can't yeah. even remember okay, who, yeah. who stayed on. So we came home. Yeah, but I actually was keen to come home away because uh, my son Andrew, who's now all of uh, thirty-seven, uh, he was one year old. He was he was born in in, in June seventy-seven, and uh, I obviously I missed him. Uh, uh, and this is coming up to his birthday. Uh, 
his first birthday. So when I came home, I'd been away. See, the tournament was June the 1st to June the 25th. Mm-hmm. So it was a long, long time to be away from home. Uh, and I, def- I missed my nearly one-year-old son. So I was thinking, um, when I came back from Dublin Airport, out to my sister's house in, in, uh, in, uh, in Leakstep. My mother's you, you, house, you, yes. you, Your mother, Fran, and Tony were living in Leakstep at the time, <laughs> out their house. And then uh, Claire, my wife, had brought um, Andrew up, my one-year-old son, to see me. But when he came up, he didn't know me and he was frightened and he started crying. Because <laughs> he was too young, I think. To, it, he just didn't get it yeah, for a so minute or so. You've like, like, been away so for long. a large percentage yeah, of his life. Yeah, that so yeah, yeah. Th- th- there's a warning there for all dads. Don't stay away too long. Yeah. When, you're, when, you're, when your children are coming up to their first birthday, don't be away for a full month. They won't know you yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when they come home. You, know, so. you started the, the presenting the Sunday game, which started up itself the in following year. 79, 79. yeah. 78 was... I'll tell you one, yeah. one story, interesting story about that. Um, people often say to me, what did you do all the time when you were out there in Argentina? And I would say, well, we went, went and had a steak every night. <laughs> um, we stayed away from the political situation because I used to have to say that to people, you know. And I feel bad now, even looking back on it now, that we didn't maybe ask more questions yeah. or think it's more gas, about it. But it just wasn't done. It wasn't done at the time. And plus the excitement of it and everything that was going on, the hectic schedule and all that. Plus the fact that we were used to the northern troubles here at home. Uh, you know, and maybe we didn't quite consider the troubles of other countries then. I mean, I'd been a news reporter in the Irish Independent. I was down in Mid- Middle Abbey Street in, in, in 73, which was only, four, what was it, four years or five years before that. You know, I'd, even, I'd been up in Belfast, working in Belfast once or twice during that time. So we'd come from a country where, as a journalist, you were on, the, the troubles was something you wouldn't get too emotional about, you know. And this was their troubles then over there. But I remember telling people, what did I do as well? I knew going out that I would be doing the commentary on the Aga Khan Cup at the horse show coming back because I was interested in horse racing as Kieran knows well I'm, I'm a horse racing fanatic but I also like show jumping I'm not expert in show jumping at all um, but at the time they needed a show jumping commentary, uh, commentator and, and I jumped out and I said I'd do it I didn't mind doing it and uh, I trusted myself only because I had an absolutely brilliant co-commentator um, a question correspondent of the Irish Times uh, um, at the time called Avril Douglas she just was supreme authority on it and she was going to be doing almost as much talking to me I just commentated the horse going around and actually you said very little really mm-hmm. because concentrating on the mistakes they made but you had to find out where Oxford fences were and things like that <laughs> so I spent a lot of time out there doing research for that because I bought some show jumping books and, and that and everything now as, again I'm slight, slightly vague but I think Ireland won it I think Ireland won they that did actually. Yeah, yeah, it, it, funny you mentioned yeah. the phone yesterday so I checked yeah. it and they did win it did, yeah. good yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't get to check it up yeah, yeah, Eddie Mack and, and I uh, got your back James Kernan was a great writer at the time a nephew yeah. of Joe Kernan and, and John, John Lettigan possibly I'm not sure maybe Con Power and then we had the excitement of, of the Paddy Cullen uh, and the Mikey Sheehy goals that came then in September yeah. as well. There was a lot happening that time, and then a year later the Sunday game came, you know, and, and all that. So that was that was seventy nine, I think. So there's a lot going on that time, definitely. You know, I, I know we're straying a little off the seventy eight World Cup, but do you remember getting the call in to ask you to do the Sunday game, or did you apply for it? How did it, how did it work? No, it just kind of happened, really. Um, I kind of got it for all the wrong reasons, really. I got it because I was, I think I was the only relatively young person in RT at the time. I was 29, you know, and, uh, and th- it was a small staff in, in RT. Uh, I tell you what's, what I think is interesting, though. Why, I've spoken at length on this. I did a long piece with Sean Moore in the Irish Times a number of years ago. And again, actually, most of the same thing, covered some of the same ground with Maliki Clerkin in the piece just last year. Why, why did the Sunday game come in the first time ever? And I, I remember exactly why it came in. Because in Ireland at the time, um, an iconic image in sport was, uh, an iconic sound in sport, I say, was the theme music of, of a match of the day. Mm. And an equally iconic 
image in a way to those of us you know who were mad about sport uh, maybe not quite to the general public was the theme music from the big match the big match was a, was a terrific program as well Brian Moore presented the big match I, mean, I was actually in that studio once I was over doing a thing again with Jimmy McKee but I could see in, when I was in the ITV studios just how big that operation was and Brian Moore uh, was a very good presenter you know was, yeah. uh, and at that time every, all the young people in Ireland who were interested in sport who were fed up maybe with England having what Ireland didn't have a chorus of came up of appeal to RTE. If if England can have a match of the day, why can't the GA have a match of the day? Mm. Um, uh, so that's how it came in. That's how the Sunday game came in. The nation, the, the nation of GA supporters said, "Why cannot we have a match of the day type program?" You know, yeah. and they did eventually. And ironically, the supreme irony: what became the single biggest uh, appeal of the Sunday game? The music. Yeah, you know, the music. Yeah. I mean, I met a guy in a pub. I remember when I was presenting it, even in 1979. I love that program. I love that program. He said, "I listen to that. I love the music." I said, is it just the music? Oh, just the music. He said, yeah. I, listen. <laughs> I listen to it before I go out to pub. And then I go out to pub, but I always make sure I'm home to hear the music at the end again. <laughs> how, do you, how do you even recognise yeah, it? Yeah, you wouldn't get a swell head listening to yeah. it, you know? Uh, tell yeah. us, James, you Interesting you? times. Oh, you know? absolutely. A quick yeah. word on Galway Tip this weekend. I know it's one of these rivalries that you enjoy. Yeah. And you mentioned your son, yeah. Andrew, there. Andrew grew up basically yeah. in the Galway dressing room in 87 yeah. and 88 yeah. and 89, those brilliant games between Galway and Tip. Yeah, so he's, got, he's got a programme from the uh, 87 all Ireland fans signed by the... By, by the old Galway team who won it, but also Nicky English brought him into the tip jersey. Nice, nice and good man, Nicky English, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah who told me a year ago that uh, one of the reasons he said, one of the reasons I remember you is he said that uh, when I played my first game for Tipperary, he said you were the commentator, and my mother got, has a Betamax tape at home in my first match. Wow. He said, but she can't play it. She doesn't know how to play this Betamax tape, and it's gone to the point where it's broken and <laughs> yeah, it can't yeah. be played. But he still won't throw it out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody remembers Betamax tapes, do they? Really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, listen, don't worry. Yeah. I had a thousand sports events on Betamax tapes and yeah, yeah, they're, they're yeah. no good you know well, we'll go away in the Ireland again I'm not sure on. I think no. we must give them one more chance. I think for all the, you know, which Galway will turn up, they blow hot and cold. We say this every year. That's their last chance gone. We'll give them one more chance. I have my good feeling is that it's Kilkenny one, Tip two, and we're probably three, you know. Uh, but the bronze medal wouldn't be enough. Listen, Jim, it's been an absolute pleasure having you in the studio and uh, we've greatly, well, we always enjoy talking to you. Brilliant yeah. having you in. Amazing memories. Thank you so much. My pleasure, on. Lovely to see you all. Can I live? And he is my second captain. Second captain. That's uh-huh. a humorous competition. I thought that. Important man for my selection. All right, I hope you uh, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jim Carney. Frankly, if you didn't enjoy it, I'm judging you. I'm judging you in a negative light now. You don't you just don't appreciate good conversation, good storytelling, all of those oh, things. Come on now. Come on. You can you Okay then. Okay, I'm with you. I'm I with love you. that we start you, I love that we ask about our <laughs> we ask about it. This is, uh, we've talked to Jim quite a lot of the, the years, so I was ready for it that you might start with one question and it might take a while to get back around to the answer to that question. As was the case when we asked about Argentina and Peru, we ended up talking about was it Mickey Duffy? Did he say the name of the big yeah, Mullingar sure. guy? Was where's the sure big? That. Yeah, where's the big sporting event on this time? It's on in Argentina. It'll take 
Could take three weeks in a boat to get over there, uh, Mickey. Yeah, that'll be fine. Uh, Why not? Let's the, do it. The Birdman Healy, all these kind yeah. of characters. And then eventually he gets back to Argentina, Peru. He picked out the diving header, Ken, as the dodgiest goal that he saw on that. But uh, you were talking about a different one, weren't you? The, the six goal. The six goals of pirouette. I'm not sure who who's scored it. It was, it was more the assist by the Peruvian uh, defender, the sort of uh, quite spectacular... Um, uh, concession of possession mm. to the Argentinians. By the way, I should say there were flights available to Argentina in 1978. I, mean, I don't know how far back I'm going that I think that lads from Mullingar had to get a boat over. Jim and Jimmy, he actually rolled over, uh, which meant their achievement all the greater, really, when you think about Not it. Not too surprising that Jimmy McGee was competitive in those trivia games. No, that's Jim on those. I don't think that surprises anyone. <laughs> I don't think that surprises anyone. But I mean, I, I, many people have asked me, kind of. You know, just once they find out that, that Jim is my uncle, they're kind of curious about sort of what that was like. And within 30 seconds, I'm telling them that story about Jimmy McGee and him. Oh, really? Yeah. So, I mean, I, to be honest, I've probably embellished that story to an absurd degree of, to anyone that I've had longer than a three-minute conversation with in my life. But, uh, yeah, no, I think it's still it, pretty we've all played, Just the image of it, just the image of these two lunatics talking about, you know, the to- the greatest show bands in Ireland in the 1950s yeah. and 60s is just... It, it resonates, though. The Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast is out now. That's... Yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. What are you talking about? What yeah. did you want? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to you, face. I'll say it to you now. I'm down to Anfield, and we'll see them. What are you doing down here? You're showing me, man. Uh, yeah, so we're going to talk about. Um, well, there's a few things going on, but a lot of it has to do with this Chelsea doctor imbroglio uh, that Jose Mourinho has created. Um, we'll Distraction. Talk to, talk to Dion Fanning about that. And we'll talk also to Gabriel uh, Marcotti, uh, who's going to analyse for us the impact of the Premier League's latest gigantic um, uh, financial deal, which is yeah, kind of just getting ridiculous at this stage. We talk a lot about money in the football podcast, though. Yeah, it's almost good. like uh, the same subject these days. <laughs> money in football. It's the Money in Football podcast. So it's time to talk about violence now with the US Murphy. Yes, we have to say it. Remember, this is just a football game. No matter who wins or loses. I am deeply sorry for my irresponsible and selfish behavior. You're being extremely truculent. Whatever truculent means, if that's good, I'm there. Strike three called, and the Giants have won the World Series in Detroit. He's out on his feet. Frank Cappuccino's going to let him keep going. Got it! Touchdown! Brian Murphy, I've got a serious question for you here. Will there be enough NFL players left to start the new season? Because every time I look online, there seems to be one guy punching the head off some other guy or one team getting in a bench-clearing brawl with another team. Hey, don't forget uh, all-pro pass rushers getting arrested for their fifth time and getting released from teams, too, like what happened here in San Francisco with Alden Smith. So, yeah, in other words, boys, the NFL has picked up right where it left off by appealing to the uh, the brute inside of all of us, man. Here we go. The training camps are underway, and everybody's fighting. Everybody's punching each other. Although we took it to the next level uh, this week, guys, here in the States, in that I don't think I ever remember, and I'd have to rack my brain, but I'm pretty sure we've never had a starting quarterback 
felled by the punch of a teammate before the season even begins, out for six to ten weeks, as I'm sure everybody in Ireland, everybody in Ireland knows <laughs> by now, of the case of Geno Smith, the very mediocre, if not sub-mediocre quarterback of the very mediocre, and if not sub-mediocre New York Jets. Uh, they've managed to steal the thunder from Tom Brady and deflate gate <laughs> with a with a fist fight in the locker room that I guess, guys, according to all reports, even though I was not in the locker room, but because of the miracle of modern Twitter, we find out was really one punch. If you can call it, if, if a fight can be called one punch, sort of Ronda Rousey like in that uh, the quarterback of the New York Jets, Geno Smith, was knocked out and had his jaw broken by a rookie teammate named I.K. Anampali, who I'd never heard of, a sixth rounder out of Louisiana Tech, not a football factory, uh, a guy who was probably a fringe guy to make the team, but in a dispute over $600 that was owed to the young rookie by the veteran and not paid back, the young rookie chose to swing and hit Geno Smith in the jaw so effectively that he will require surgery and be out six to ten weeks. Guys, the season starts a month from today, so that rules out Geno Smith from the starting line, starting a job in New York. Just another in the comedy of errors that is the New York Jets. And just another in an August that is filled with some uh, some prominent scuffles. But that takes the cake, guys. Yeah, one I saw, uh, weirdly, it was tweeted by, or certainly it was put on um, put online by the Cowboys themselves, it was a fight between Des Bryant, their wide receiver, kind of all-star player, uh, biggest, best paid player on the team. And one of their cornerbacks, uh, I, don't, I don't know why the Cowboys decided that they should share all that, but uh, Carolina Pan- Panthers there, big name quarterback Cam Newton got into a fight with Josh Norman uh, a few days ago. Apparently Newton caught a bit of a heat for that one. What Does this always happen and it's just there's more cameras now or, or what's going on? Yeah, I think so, actually. I mean, I'd love to tell you that there was a um, that there is a, a, a titanic shift or a seismic shift in the philosophy of the NFL or that... Uh, Guys are uh, guys are fighting more than ever because they're all fueled up on uh, they're all hopped up on performance enhancing drugs and concussions. But in reality, I covered the football. I covered the football as a traveling beat writer for six years, and you'd see it in training camp. Uh, it's the nature of training camp that these are long drudgerous, uh, long uh, bits of drudgery that go on day after day in hot weather, and you have a lot of you have guys who are trying to make the team. Uh, guys who are fighting for their livelihood against maybe guys who are uh, accomplished and arrived, like a Cam Newton, like a Des Bryant, like a Geno Smith, although he's not as accomplished as some of the others. And and what happens is you have fights because you know linemen go on linemen, uh, you know offensive linemen and defensive linemen, just day after day thudding their pads against each other. Uh, receivers and cornerbacks, as was the case with Des Bryant, he fought with a cornerback. I would say the Cam Newton one. Is, is second most unusual to the Geno Smith one, because the Geno Smith one is forever, will live forever in New York tabloid lore. But uh, the, the, you don't usually see quarterbacks fight like a Cam Newton because, you know, guys, the very basic fundamental tenets of a football fight are moronic because guys are wearing helmets. And I mean big, strong helmets that can easily break your knuckle the moment you swing at them. So the football <laughs> fight has always been... A silly thing, a ridiculous thing. Hey, in basketball, go ahead, have at it. In baseball, it's age old, although usually it's just emptying the benches and milling around. In the old days, though, you'd swing and have a real fight. But the football fight has never made sense because of the mere armor, the the the, the shield that is being worn. So when Cam Newton 
is swinging his his uh, his hand around. That is, you know, I know he's trying to be inspirational. Lots of times these guys say it fires up the team, makes us better, gets us focused, sharpens our minds, gets us uh, on point. We see how much we all care. But for Cam Newton, who there's high hopes that he's going to, you know, in his fourth year now, going to grow into this great quarterback. He's taken him to the playoffs. Don't be swinging your hand against helmets, dude. That's crazy talk. So he's trying to make it sound, though, like he was being a leader in doing these things. But circling back to your original premise, yeah, I think these things are mostly normal and that we just have more cameras and more media now. You know, nowadays, this, thing, this Gino Smith thing, this thing was this thing was well-known. I think it probably happened at like 10 in the morning. And by like 11 in the morning, people were tired of it. You know, you had so much coverage of it. So, yes, I think the larger answer to your question is just, just more cameras and more social media outlets than there used to be when guys used to fight in peace. Yeah, I'm, I mean, the, the teammates thing is interesting as well in that – Right, you say two teammates are fighting each other on a soccer team or on a rugby team. It's like brother against brother. But what you're actually talking about in an NFL training camp is offense against defense. And maybe just tell us a little bit about the relationship between the off- the offensive units and the defensive units and why basically it's like two completely different teams effectively wearing the same uniform throughout the season. That's a true story, and like kind of the only analogy that really comes to mind is in armed services, like in the United States, you would think that the United States Army and the United States Navy, given that they're both military forces of the country, would love each other. They hate each other. There's like a huge rivalry, and you see it play out, too, on the football game that they play every year, or the Marines who look down on everybody because they feel like they're the toughest of them all. That's kind of the analogy you draw is that you'd think everybody's pulling on the same rope. But in reality, they speak different languages and they sort of almost wear different hats. And defensive guys, their job is to, you know, stop the offense. And so therefore, they kind of have a a, a natural disdain, especially for quarterbacks who are now more than ever the rich, pretty boys of the NFL. The league has changed so much, even in my lifetime, where quarterbacks like, you know, we just lost Ken Stabler recently, a great Raiders quarterback. And you go back and look at the footage and the hits he endured. You know, he endured some savage hits, just like all quarterbacks in the 70s. But now, and we've talked about it through the years, the protections that are in place for quarterbacks make it almost like impossible to touch them, which has made them, A, you know, keep their pretty faces intact. I mean, there's no more handsome guys out there than Cam Newton and Tom Brady. And B, made them incredibly wealthy because they're the guys who are so important. And defensive guys resent that. They really do. They're like, hey, man, we're the ones out here, you know, we're, we're, we're the real physical guys. We're the guys really playing football. We're the, we're the violent guys out there. We're the manly men. And this pretty boy guy like Cam Newton or Tom Brady or Colin Kaepernick or whoever you're talking about, Aaron Rodgers, Tony Romo, all the guys that are famous internationally, I could start listing off defensive players and nobody in Ireland know who I'm talking about. But when I say Tom Brady and Tony Romo and Colin Kaepernick and Aaron Rodgers, you guys know who I'm talking about. So there's a massive disdain from defensive players towards their offense. Now, when the season starts... You know, everybody's pulling on the same rope. But in, in, in training camp, when these guys are trying to establish their, their bona fides, defensive guys definitely hate offensive guys. It's less so the other way. Offensive guys don't, don't hate defensive guys as much because the offensive guys are mostly trying to get the ball down the field. Uh, but you do see it with the offensive linemen. Offensive, and, and most of the fights occur between offensive linemen and defensive linemen or offensive linemen and linebackers because that is where the most physical and violent stuff happens day after day in the heat of these guys competing for jobs. So you'd frequently see offensive linemen fighting with D-linemen. They're just not big-name famous guys. It's not Cam Newton or Des Bryant or Geno Smith. So rest assured, the offensive linemen also hate the defensive linemen. 
Again, kind of like, why would the Army hate the Navy? You guys are on the same team, but that's the case. You see it also a little bit in baseball with hitters. I once tried to go interview Ken Griffey Jr. when he was the peak of his fame in the 1990s. He was such a spectacular player, really second only to Barry Bonds. Somebody even put him ahead of Barry Bonds in some ways. I went to go do a feature on him about an Oakland A's pitcher that I was covering, and Ken Griffey said to me, first he was just being a jerk because he was being Ken Griffey, but he said, uh, he's like, no, man, I, I don't talk about pitchers. And I said, well, yeah, sure, I just wanted to interview about this, this guy over there in Oakland. Did you hear me? I don't talk about pitchers. I hate pitchers. Pitchers are trying to get me out. They're my enemy. I'm done. And like walked away from me. I was like, gee, he was being really real about that. But that's kind of the same analogy in that hitters sort of disdain pitchers because they have totally different assignments. So it's all part of the culture, guys. All part of the culture. Ken Griffey Jr., not a guy to get deep into the psychoanalysis of his opponent there, obviously. You just uh, will ignore that this person exists and just try to keep it in home runs. (laughs) As long as I don't talk about it, you should be fine. Or he just wanted to be a jerk. Jerk to me, you know. Just you know what, like 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 Chet in Weird Science said, because I get off on it. Remember when he was torturing Anthony Michael Hall and them, and that's what I think Griffey was like. Oh, here comes a punk reporter. Just gonna, I'm gonna mess with him because I get off on it. So uh, the humiliations we endured, guys, as notebook. So you guys in your podcast, you're mm-hmm. like, you know, you're in the plush Irish Times studio. You have your TV show. The guys come to the set. They That's feel certainly important. true. They the green room. They treat you guys like stars. When you're a grunt reporter and you walk into those locker rooms and clubhouses, get ready for the abuse because <laughs> here it comes. So when we talk about team spirit then with NFL teams, Brian, presumably that's, I know this, this is a hard thing to quantify, but it's a little bit different to say a basketball team where it's more what we would think about with the team spirit and football or Gaelic football hurting these kind of sports. The NFL teams are so big and it seems like they're such separate. We haven't even mentioned the uh, special teams. I presume field goal kickers aren't getting involved in too many brawls. But they're people a, even ignore, even if they were to get in a brawl, people would still ignore. They're a separate entity as well. So it seems almost like for a head coach to create an environment there where everybody functions together and wants to win for each other is a very different challenge. It's almost like running a, just even the playing personnel alone, it almost sounds more like running a medium-sized company where you're just hoping that each person in charge of each team can get them functioning in a certain way. Yeah, you're right on it. And that's why you have offensive coordinators and defensive coordinators. And and football is such a um, a meeting-centric, uh, because they have six days of downtime between games. So all they do is sit around and they meet and they game plan, but they don't do it together. The defensive players meet in one room, and the offensive players meet in another room. And they're the purvey. They're sort of the um, at the behest of the defensive coordinator and the offensive coordinator. And then even sub that, the linebackers meet in one room, the running backs meet in one room, the defensive backs meet in another room. The only time the whole team is in a room together is like when the head coach gives like maybe a you know a twice a week address or on a Saturday night when he gives the big pep talk at the team hotel. So it is like a medium sized company, which is why you kind of, when you're looking for head coaches in the NFL, you're looking for guys who have that kind of grand vision guys who are, you know, Bill Walsh is like the ultimate example that comes up. It's just like this guy with like a master architect's vision of what he wanted his team to look like and be like Bill Belichick, even though he doesn't express it to the media is the same way. You know, he has this vision of how a team should be run. That's why here in San Francisco, we're like sweating profusely over the hire of Jim Tom Sula, the defensive line coach, who, while is an incredibly engaging personal guy from Western Pennsylvania, slap you on the back, drink a beer with you, I fear that he doesn't have that grand architect's vision of running that medium-sized company that he's going to need to. So these are the qualities that go into these things, yeah. And then you got guys, you know, how do they treat fights and all that stuff? In fact, one of the notes 
about the 49ers camp so far this year is that they haven't had hardly any fights. And one of our, our writers was suggesting to us that maybe Tom Sewell is being too easy on them, that it's too much of a good guy slapping him on the back. You saw Jerry Jones from the Dallas Cowboys say that he liked that Des Bryant got into the fight. So you got to have your visions. It is weird. Football's weird, man. You know, they said, who was it? I think it was George Will, who I don't know, you can agree with his politics or disagree. He's a very conservative commentator over here in the States, which is, by the way, quite a lucrative business these days with Donald Trump. <laughs> but uh, he's, uh, he, he said that he hated football because it combined the two worst aspects of American society, violence and meetings. You know, meaning that they go to a huddle and have a conference and they come out and commit violence on each other. So that's football for you. I think we'll have to do uh, a Donald Trump Yeah, we got to talk. We've got to do a Donald Trump show. It. We'll leave that. We'll do yeah. it. We'll, it's all heating up. So we'll do a Donald Trump chat in the next. Let's, uh, let's hope we got to do it soon before he's out. But uh, at the oh, same yeah, time, yeah, at the same time. <laughs> he'll, either be, he'll either be out of the race by the next time we talk or he'll be leading the polls by even more. Right? Yeah. <laughs> You'll be bowing down to your new uh, glorious new leader. I know you're a Donald Trump man, Brian, but listen, the golf, a uh, quick word on that, USPGA, Whistling straights is getting going now and it's a bit of a, an attack of the Irish Rory's back from his injury what about Shane Lowry and you name there for Sean we, we obviously got some of the American feed over here and even the 18th the guy introducing the players up the 18th fairway which is a quirk of those tournaments called him Sean Lowry you know how Irish people get about their names being confused Brian and he was listed as Australian on Google still is I think no matter what he does but uh, did you enjoy have you enjoyed Shane Lowry I did enjoy him. He's always come across to me as a guy who's real likable. Hey, yeah, you know, guy. he's almost got that American body too. You know, I mean, you don't see too many Irish. He's built like one of the, when you see American tourists come over to Ireland, you can tell because they got the big gut hanging over, right? <laughs> well, that's, I can't believe that Shane looks like that. I, to me, the Irish physique is not what Shane Lowry has. It's more like a Patrick Harrington, more like a Rory McIlroy, a Graham McDowell. Although, I, I, actually, what am I saying? Darren Clark. Before he's gone all svelte and James Bond on us. Yeah, I, I, I would with, say McDowell and Harrington have their moments where they, at one stage, Harrington, in typical Potter Harrington fashion, see, everyone was looking at him going, Jesus, Potter, you've gone a bit, bit paunchy there. I mean, you were a lot more svelte when you were winning mm. the British Open. And he said, oh, yeah, no, this is my new thing. I'm putting on weight to try to, uh, you know, get my he, swing back. He thought it was I'm even, not joking. He, yeah, this is, this he is one of his theories. He good for his alignment. <laughs> yeah. To be like oh, yeah, he probably, did like a, he probably did like a six-hour study or something to, Commit, yeah, that's classic. I can see him carefully and methodically eating too to, uh, to put on the weight. You know what I mean? Just He's like got those eyes like he had at the eighteenth in the British when he won the British Open, eating a uh, plate of pancakes. <laughs> that's hilarious. Well, listen. So Shane, um, it seems like a, you know it's funny you say that because I was watching him win. I was on an airplane, and uh, God bless Virgin America because they uh, they let you, they let you watch live tv and um and i watched jim nance and jim nance was really going over the top i thought in a positive way about shane lowry and he was saying he's arrived and you're gonna see more of them and the pga's next week and he said he and then he went big on the ireland thing and as they slow motioned uh shane lowry kind of pumping his fist as he made that birdie on the 72nd hole nance with his big deep you know he's like congratulations shane lowry and congratulations, Ireland. And I was like, wow. He really went out of his way to shout you guys out. So um, it was, you know, uh, he's a, he, he's been an intriguing player for a while. They they talked about, who was it? I think it was Faldo, who I don't usually enjoy at all, uh, was discussing that when he won the Irish amateur, when he won the Irish Open as an amateur, now you guys must remember this, right? Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. Was, it, Faldo was saying it was one of the great sporting things he'd ever seen. Was it quite an emotional win for him? It was really emotional. And what happened was he 
marched up the eight, the eighteenth. He had loads of local support there. The club wasn't too far away from where he's from. Had so much support. I remember him. The, the, for some reason, the image that stands out in my head was he was walking up the eighteenth fairway, and he was practically hyperventilating. He was getting so excited, and he was taking in the acclaim of the crowd. But if I remember correctly, he dropped a shot at the last. Certainly, Robert Rock took yeah. him to a playoff, and then he had to come back and do it again, and he won the playoff. So it was unbelievable scenes. Yeah, nine, and, I think it was. And yeah. I'm sure it was mentioned on, the, or maybe it wasn't mentioned on the US TV coverage, but uh, he comes from this amazing uh, GAA family. So his, fa- his father and his two uncles played in like the most famous All-Ireland final of all time back in 1982. <laughs> So no, and he plays it up hugely and he's a very, very patriotic Irishman, watches the GAA from wherever he is every Sunday and tweets every Sunday about uh, the, the GAA results of the day and everything. So he couldn't be more popular. He's, uh, and he's such a down-to-earth, lovely guy. So, I mean, he, he, he's, he's big news over here now. He's a big, big uh, favorite amongst I'm people. I'm in. I'm yeah. totally yeah. in, man. You guys, I didn't, I'm glad you told me that. I didn't know, and certainly that stuff doesn't resonate over here unless it's with the real hardcore Irish Americans. Uh, you know, some, you have to, you know, Harrington, because of his success, Ryder Cup and majors, and then Rory being Rory, the number one player in the world. Those kind of things. But no, those little details of the Shane Lowry, because Shane Lowry clearly was not a celebrity or not a known name over here. Uh, and he probably still isn't. You know, the Bridgestone, him winning the Bridgestone, I have to admit, did not resonate hugely on the American sports radar like it did with hardcore sports fans like me. But, I, you know, if he shows up this week at Whistling Straits, I mean, it's tough to do it two weeks in a row, as you know, but why not? I mean, I'll keep my eyes on him. But I had to make my pick today. And uh, I got to say, it, it just for whatever reason, I, I don't like this guy. I don't enjoy this guy at all. But I saw him in 2010 make it into the playoff at Whistling Straits. I covered that event. He's finished second in his last two events. I kind of feel like it's a bomber's course. I kind of feel Bubba Watson this week, guys. I'm not saying that with great enthusiasm. I'm just telling you it's what I feel. <laughs> all right, Brian, listen, we'll, we'll see what happens. We'll talk to you next week. Great stuff. Nice all right, you. guys. All the best. I say I'm a million percent. That is better than a hundred percent. I could find giants at the stadium in Paris. I'm going to Lex Luger, we got a date with Destiny right now. Yeah. Now, one piece of American sport we didn't get to reference with US Murph there. I mean, it's maybe criminally overlooked on my part, but uh, Tom Brady. Don't know if anyone has seen this. I'm sure if you've been on the internet, you probably have. Uh, one of the, my favorite headlines around this subject is so Tom Brady is in court. Well, actually, I'll give you the headline first. Sketch artist apologizes for not making Tom Brady appear as handsome as he is in real life. <laughs> that sounds seriously like an onion headline, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. But actually, this is true. The, he's in the, the, the flake gate hearing is being held at the moment. Tom Brady's in there. Tom Brady's being sketched by a, a court with one of these people whose job it is to sketch these particular real life people and she just hasn't done Tom Brady justice how would you describe his look there guys Tom Brady is the most lantern jawed all American hero style uh, person that you could possibly imagine I mean like the guy is just you know handsome in the most you know cliched stereotypical Mm -hmm. leading man style and she's drawn him like he's this tiny five foot seven rake thin weasel he looks a lot less handsome than the lawyers beside him. And also, that's, that's, I mean, yeah. I can't go any further than that. With a very um, kind of lumpy skull as well. He's uh, Really arched eyebrows, too. Yeah. He, he looks kind of like Steve Buscemi. 
You know, and yeah. that's Tom Brady and Steve Buscemi are not two people that you would put together. Yeah, it's funny. One of the memes, there's a lot of memes going about. One of them did have his head stuck on Steve Buscemi. I don't know which <laughs> movie it was. He's also there on Michael Jackson's head in Thriller. He's wrapped up in E.T.'s shawl on the bike and the basket <laughs> of the bike cycling along. It's a lot of pretty good memes. Yeah, that's pretty Tom good. Brady, yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, as a sketch artist, I'm, I'm thinking of all I have to draw criminals all day every day I finally get the chance to draw someone really famous and she messes it up to this extent that's, that's poor alright uh, just about going to wrap things up now just to mention the huge disappointing news in the last 24 hours that Andy Lee's world title fight in Tolman Park is off you're, I'm sure you're aware of this he's been struggling with the virus and both his promoter Adam Booth and Frank Warren the promoter of Billy Joe Saunders are you looking at more memes just, just the comments of Jane Rosenberg who's Jane the, Rosenberg? she's the courtroom artist oh sorry yeah I didn't get the tone of them before. I'm just, uh, what do you think the tone is here? I mean, I'm just reading it, but this is, she says, uh, I have to say, I apologize to Tom Brady if I didn't make him as good looking as he really is. I'm probably going to go home and feel terrible. Uh, someone forwarded me some of the cartoons and his sketched face and various characters, and there were some mean comments and whatnot. I guess they're just having fun. I'm glad everyone has a lot of free time. <laughs> so it's not necessarily the most sincere apology then no I think she uh, I think she's probably a bit irritated uh, she sounds to me a little bit irritated by what's happened uh, but you know at the end of the day it is a bad likeness it, it's a bit like the restored uh, face of Jesus remember from the from Spain a few years ago um, that's the first thing that I thought of when, yeah, I, when I heard it when the, I saw the, it Jeff. The, the, clean, uh, the cleaner I think just thought that she'd maybe spruce up the uh, the the face of Jesus on this old fresco and uh, turned it into something quite new, <laughs> and uh, it's it's a kind of a partner piece to that. So Andy Lee has a virus. Adam Booth and Frank Warren reckoned it was too much of a risk to go ahead with the September nineteenth date, which is really tough for Andy, I'm sure, to to take. I mean, the excitement is building up nicely. We had him in studio last week. Now he will be fighting Saunders in Manchester on October tenth which is yeah, certainly a consolation. I don't even know if that's the right word to use, but it's not as though there's no defined date or venue. That's part of a, another world title fight that's going on over there. But it's obviously not great for Limerick or for what would have been a really unique, I think, event in Irish sport. These world title fights are amazing. The atmosphere, I'm thinking back to the Bernard Dunn fights, was absolutely u- unbelievable on those really, really big nights. But it's not going to happen. There's plenty of speculation that slow ticket sales is the real reason behind the change. And Frank Warren was on off the ball last night saying that 12,500 tickets have been sold. And if that is the correct figure, that's really good going with five weeks to go. We talked about this last week, Murph, that even if you're not going to sell out, if you're getting, if you're getting above 20,000, which 12,500 would indicate that you would do if you're still five weeks to go, if you're getting up to 20,000 and above that in boxing terms, that's actually massive. Now, I was really surprised, i got to say, when the fight was first announced for Tomant, largely because Frank Warren was involved and Frank Warren wanted in London what Frank Warren gets at once, he usually gets. So it was hugely impressive that Adam Booth and Andy managed to get this deal over the line in the first place. But now it's, you know, even hearing Warren being the man to break the news last night, it kind of gives the impression that, like, there's now taking over the operation here again. Uh, one of his quotes was, the only report that matters comes from us. So it, uh, it's, it's obviously uh, tough and it's, and it's disappointing and it's not going to be the same event. But let's just hope October the 10th goes well for Andy and he gets a shot. Yeah. A defense in Ireland after that. Yeah, and it's not like uh, it's not like motivation is going to be in short supply. He's in there with Frank Warren's man, so 
let's hope it's not a particularly long night have for a listen, uh, Billy Joe Saunders. Have a listen to the Irish Times Second Campus Football podcast. Dion Fanning in particular was excellent on the uh, rails going on at Chelsea at the moment. And we'll have to leave this one there for the time being. Thank you very much, Kieran. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Kieran. Thank you, Owen. Thanks, Ken. Thanks for listening. And we'll talk to you in Monday. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home. Those, those, those boys. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at fifty dollars, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.